All right. Good morning, Fair Hill Church. Good morning. Um, if you have children, uh, they are free to go to the kids' lesson this morning. So it is a pleasure to be here with you uh, on this Lord's Day. As uh, Alan said, my name is Doug Clark, and I'm the intern here at Fair Hill Church. And just so you guys have an idea of what it means to be the intern here at Fair Hill Church, what that means is that on any given Sunday when both Peter and Steve decide that they want to call out from work, I'm the guy that has to fill in for them. So with that being said, after this Sunday, I'll probably see you sometime after Christmas. So, so it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into our text. Uh, Lord God, we come to you today. We thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to come together to worship, and especially to uh, worship you through the hearing of the word. Lord, I pray that you would season my words with wisdom, prepare the hearts um, of your people today, uh, that they might receive your word, and that we all together might grow uh, in our holiness and edification and love towards you. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Today I'm going to pose a question to you, and this is the question that we're really going to wrestle with today as we examine our text. And the question is this, what does God desire from you and from me in order to permit us entry into his kingdom? Take a moment and think about this question and ask yourselves, what does God want from me. And as you think about this question, what truth have you affirmed in your mind that really you believe solidifies your place in the kingdom of God? Perhaps for some of you, it's some theological truth. Maybe you rest soundly on the fact that you have got a doctrine like justification, down pat, and you say, I am justified by faith alone, and on that knowledge alone, I stand in the kingdom of God. Or maybe you're one of those people who says, you know what, before time began, God chose me and elected me. And on this knowledge, I believe that I've got my place in the kingdom of God. Or maybe it's not some theological truth or some big word that ends in T-I-O-N that you solidify your place in the kingdom of God by. Rather, maybe it's the fact that you really separate yourself from the things of the world and you're really walking in what appears to be pureness and holiness in your life. And you say, you know what? I, I really have got this Christian walk thing down. So I'm pretty sure on the basis of my walk that my place in the kingdom is secure. Or maybe it's neither of these things. Maybe you're one of those people who just has a heart to serve. And every week you show up here at church willing and ready to serve. And you say, my actions clearly show that my place in the kingdom is secure. Or maybe it's none of these things. Maybe you're just one of those people who has an abundance. You've been blessed, and out of your abundance, you give to others. And you're like, you know what? The Lord has clearly blessed me. Therefore, I'm blessing others, and the abundance that the Lord has blessed me with solidifies my place in the kingdom. Now, I don't want to downplay or kind of make light of any of these things. First and foremost, Theology matters. Our theology matters. If we have wrong theology, chances are we have a wrong knowledge of who God is, and therefore we're probably worshiping a God that looks a lot more like us than the God of the Bible. Secondly, it is of the utmost importance that we as Christians are growing in personal holiness and our walk with Christ. It is also our duties as Christians to serve and to give. 
However, when dealing with these things, and especially this question of what does God desire from me to enter the kingdom of God, I think it's important for us to keep in mind the words of the Lord in Jeremiah when he states that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know, it's in this truth that our sinful hearts really can take what is so good in these things and distort it for our own glory. In light of this truth, our theology can become arrogant knowledge that puffs up. In light of this truth, our piousness oftentimes tends to become a judgmental legalism that we hang over the heads of others. In light of this truth, our service and giving oftentimes becomes a means by which we judge how good we are in the eyes of others and also in the eyes of God. And when our hearts deceive us in this way, we ultimately end up exalting ourselves in an unconscious act of self-worship. And a primary example of this distortion of heart is seen in the scribes who oppose Jesus. You see, the scribes were viewed as almost like the pinnacle of religious perfection in Israel during the times of Jesus. They were the intellectual and practical experts of the law. They were the ones who preserved the text, they were the ones who interpreted the text, and they were the ones who taught the text to the people of God. Yet in their theological mastery, they arrogantly looked down on those who were beneath them, and they reviled anyone who dared to challenge them. And in this, their hearts are shown to be prideful. These scribes were also the standard of moral purity in Israel. Yet in their religious practice, they exalted themselves above others, and they placed burdens upon the people that they themselves weren't willing to bear. Again, they reveal themselves to be prideful and hypocritical. Finally, these scribes were the ones who would go above and beyond in their service and tithing and giving of money. However, this was not done out of love for others or for God. Rather, this was done that others would see how pious and good that they were. And ultimately, in the very good religious acts that these scribes performed, this external religious show that the scribes performed, their hearts are revealed before God to be prideful, hypocritical, and self-righteous. Yet, in their own eyes, these scribes were holy. These scribes were righteous. These scribes had found favor with God, and certainly to the scribes belong the kingdom of God. And because of all these things, these external shows of religion, the scribes' place was secure in the kingdom of God. Yet what we're going to see in our text, Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34, here in this text, Jesus is going to show us that our religious knowledge and practice is not enough for us to gain entry into the kingdom of God. Rather, Jesus is going to show us by his own example that what God desires is a, is a heart of love towards him that manifests itself through love of neighbor. And this is explicitly going to be seen in Jesus' offering of himself as a sacrifice in obedient love towards God and sacrificial love towards his people. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34, which states, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, 
Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as self is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. To understand this passage rightly, we need to understand it in its immediate context. And this passage, in its immediate context, is essentially the last speed bump on the road to the cross. Its bigger context starts in chapter 11, and in chapter 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem. And when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he is on a trajectory to the cross. He has got a mission and a goal, and he is focused on it. Yet along this road to Calvary, Jesus engages in a series of conflicts that are going to turn the heat up on the religious leaders of Israel so much that tensions are going to grow so intense that killing Jesus is really the only option that they have. This situation is like a balloon that's just building and building and building until it pops. And on his trajectory to the cross, what we see is Jesus rebuking, exposing, and asserting authority over the religious leaders of Israel. And as a result of this, they want him dead. Jesus has to go. And to accomplish this, the religious leaders seek to entrap him on three separate occasions. The first, two weeks ago, Peter mentioned that the Pharisees and the Herodians sought to entrap him through political dispute. Last week, Steve showed that the Sadducees were trying to entrap him through a theological dispute regarding the resurrection. And this week, what we're looking at is our final test to entrap Jesus. And in our passage, a scribe seeks to test Jesus regarding his view of the law. Now, this is a very strange encounter between Jesus and the scribe. You see, in all the previous encounters, there's this obvious kind of tension between Jesus and the religious leaders that's building. And this is clear in their deceptiveness and ill intention towards Jesus. And as a result of this tension, Jesus openly rebukes them and puts them to shame. However, in this encounter, there almost seems to be some type of common ground between Jesus and the scribe. Even what appears to be an affirmation of the scribe by Jesus. Here we see the scribe arrive on the scene as Jesus is rebuking the Sadducees on the resurrection, and the scribe agrees with Jesus' assessment of their theology. And then he poses the question, which is the greatest commandment of all? To which Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, which states, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your might. And next he quotes Leviticus 19.18, which states, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus states that there isn't any commandment that's greater than these. 
surprisingly, in response to Jesus' answer, the scribe affirms him, agrees with him, only adding that Jesus' answer, these two commandments, are greater than the whole sacrificial system. And then Jesus responds. We got a back and forth going on here. Jesus responds by apparently commending the scribe, stating he is not far from the kingdom of God. If we were to take these six verses, right, and we were to isolate them, set them over here, outside of the immediate context, as well as the rest of Scripture, it would appear that Jesus and the scribe had broken this pattern of conflict that we've seen thus far, and it almost appears like they're having a buddy-buddy moment. I agree with you. You agree with me. High five. But I don't believe that this is what's happening. Rather, what I believe here in this encounter is that Jesus is actually rebuking this scribe. You see, Jesus stating that the scribe is not far from the kingdom of God would have been a brazen and astounding statement. As a matter of fact, it's so bold of a statement that the text says that no one dared to ask him any more questions after it. And this should be less understood as an affirmation, but more as a rebuke, but not just any rebuke. This is a rebuke that ultimately silenced the religious leaders. It shut their mouths. And I believe that it was the straw that broke the camel's back. Because the next time we see these religious leaders show up, it's when they come to arrest Jesus. Jesus makes this statement, and the next time they appear, they are ready to kill them. So what about this statement that the scribe is not far from the kingdom of God? What about this statement is so astounding? Well, let's remember who the scribes are. They are the religious elites. These scribes are the standard of orthodoxy in their theology. These scribes are the picture of religious excellent, excellence, and they outgave everyone if anyone should have the first ticket into the kingdom of God and the best seat at the Lord's table, it was the scribes. Yet Jesus does not affirm the scribes' place in the kingdom of God on the basis of his external religious performance. Rather, he condemns the scribe by saying that he's not far from the kingdom of God. And in this statement, Jesus affirms that the scribes answer, yes, it is correct. However, he denies that having the right answer or correct external show of religion is sufficient for entry into the kingdom of God, and that in the very commands that this scribe has expounded, they actually expose his hypocrisy. And when we examine the commands to love the Lord our God and love our neighbor in light of the scribe's intentions towards Jesus, the reason for his exclusion from the kingdom is revealed. Because the scribe has broken these commandments in his heart. So, how did the scribe break the commandment which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. How did the scribe break this commandment? This command is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And Deuteronomy 6 is kind of like a whole treaty on what it looks like to love the Lord your God with your entire being, with every facet of who you are. This chapter defines the command. And when we come down to verse 17 of chapter 6, 
we see kind of like a subcommand that further defines what it means to love the Lord your God with every bit of your being. And it says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. What does this mean? At Massa, the people of Israel were in the wilderness, and they were thirsty. And rather than having faith in the Lord that he would deliver them from their thirst, the people of Israel began to grumble against him and question whether he was with them or whether the Lord had just led them out of Egypt to allow them and their children and their livestock to die of thirst. The psalmist kind of elaborates on this situation at Massa by stating that the Israelites actually hardened their hearts against God and called for him to prove to them that he was good rather than looking back to Egypt and remembering the good that he had already done for them. Israel was testing God by calling God to prove his goodness to them. And Israel, or, and in the pattern of Israel, we see this scribe following the steps of his forefathers in the wilderness because here the scribe is putting the Lord God to the test. This is explicitly seen when we look at Mark 12's parallel in Matthew 22:34, which states, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, that's the scribe, asked him a question to do what? To test him. This scribe didn't come to Jesus sincerely to inquire of him, but rather to put his goodness to the test by questioning him according to the law. However, in doing so, he failed to realize that the one whom he tested was the one who gave Israel the command. And he was so inwardly focused on his own sinful agenda and purpose that he was blinded to who it was that he was questioning and in this question, the scribe was drawing near to God with his mouth. And he actually thought he was honoring God. But as the, the prophet Isaiah says, his heart was far from him. How often do you and I mirror the scribe in our violation of the greatest commandment? Like, clearly we're not standing in front of Jesus asking Jesus, are you really good? How often do we present this public expression of what we think a religiously upright person looks like, yet under the expression, our hearts are far from him? Perhaps in your life, this is seen by us showing up to church every Sunday morning wearing this facade of the perfect family, yet in the quiet recesses of your mind, you question God's goodness by wondering if you'd be happier in your life if God had given you a different path than the current marriage or family that you've been given. Or perhaps we masquerade about our communities, giving the appearance that we have everything in our lives in order, yet every night we question whether God is good by worshiping drugs or alcohol as a means by which we find our happiness. Perhaps in public, we hide our character flaws so that others will believe that we're something that we're not, rather than believing that God is good in making us the way that we are. Perhaps we present our marriages as the Ephesians 5 marriages before other couples, but when we're alone, we question God's goodness in marriage by betraying our marriage vows through giving our hearts and bodies to pornography. 
Or perhaps we have great theology. We have great knowledge of the Bible. People see the gifts that God has given us, yet we question God's goodness towards us by allowing pride to swell up our egos, making us think that we're greater than we really are. What good are any of these external shows if our hearts are far from God? What purpose do they serve in light of eternity? What good are these facades if they have no place in the kingdom of God? As we're going to see, God does not desire the religion of a heart that's far from him. God desires a heart that loves him with every facet of its being. Yet this is not the only offense that the scribe has committed. The scribe has also broken the second greatest commandment, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This verse is quoted from Leviticus 19.18. And Leviticus 19.18 kind of functions as a capstone to the preceding nine verses. And these preceding nine verses give details on how Israel was to love their neighbor. So we've got five ways that Israel is commanded to love their neighbor. The first, they are to care for the poor and the sojourner. Second, we love our neighbor through not stealing from or lying against them. Third, we love our neighbor by not being oppressive and not taking advantage of our neighbor. Fourth, we love our neighbor by not dealing impartially or unjustly with our neighbor. And finally, we love our, la- our neighbor by not hating them in our heart, not taking vengeance against them, and not bearing a grudge against our brother. What's interesting is in Leviticus 19, all these commandments are followed by the statement, I am the Lord. And what this statement is showing is that breaking these commandments against your neighbor is actually breaking the commandment against God himself. This is why John says in 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom whom he's seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And in fact, Paul and James state that loving our neighbor actually fulfills the whole law. And the reason for this is because a heart that fulfills the law or fulfills this law flows forth from one that loves the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. However, loving your neighbor as yourself, this isn't what the scribe is doing in his encounter with Jesus. Prior to the three tests of Jesus, as we've said, the religious leaders are put to shame by him. And as a result, they began to conspire against him. And their intention was that they might arrest him and kill him. This scribe, in his testing of Jesus, is actually the last attempt to entrap Jesus so that they might be able to condemn him. And in each of these tests against Jesus, there's this almost false sense of flattery that the religious leaders present to Jesus, and this is used as a mask to hide their hate and contempt that they had for him in their hearts. Yet what was under the surface of this cordial mask was a heart that sought to steal Jesus' glory and his life from them, or from him. Under this mask was a heart that sought to oppress him by putting him to death. Under this mask was a heart that was searching for a way to impartially judge him as guilty. 
And under this mask was a heart that ultimately hated Jesus so much that it wanted him dead. This scribe's disdain for Jesus was hidden under this religious mask that he wore, and this disdain flowed from a heart that was cold in love towards God. How often do we, how often do we offer up this mask of love in the presence of others, yet we have a heart that's cold towards them? Maybe this is seen as you act loving and caring towards others in public, yet behind closed doors, the hurtful and abusive words you speak towards your spouse and children reveal the condition of your heart. Or maybe we offer up service in the context of church, yet as we're driving home on Sunday afternoon, we have this feeling of disdain towards the homeless person who's begging for change on Route 40. And rather than stopping and saying, I'm going to grab McDonald's, I'm going to sit down with this guy who probably has nobody, and I'm going to love him through just spending some time with him, we think to ourselves as we drive past the red light where he begs, get a job, bum. Or maybe we act like we care about the suffering of others. Yet when we hear about those in addiction, and we're in Elkton, which has a massive heroin problem. When we hear about those in addiction destroying their lives, we turn our backs believing that they did it to themselves rather than seeing how can we help this person overcome this bondage to this sin. We turn our backs thinking to ourselves, They did it to themselves and they just need to stop getting high. Or maybe we smile in the faces of those who we worship alongside in the congregation, yet behind closed doors we covet their marriages. We covet their well-behaved children. We covet their monetary success. And as a result of our coveting, our hearts begin to grow bitter towards them. Or maybe it's none of these things. Maybe it's as simple as us presenting this image of religiousness because we don't actually see any sin in ourselves. Yet secretly under the surface, the sin that we're struggling with is pride of how much more righteous we are than others when really we're just self-righteous. Once again, what good are any of these external religious shows if our hearts are far from God? What purpose do they serve in light of eternity? What good are these facades if they have no place in the kingdom? Do we see ourselves in the sins of the scribes? If so, then perhaps our outward expression of insincere religion reveals that our hearts have grown cold towards God and towards our neighbors. Ultimately, it was this profession of the scribe in light of his sin against Jesus that served to expose his hypocrisy. First, clearly as we've seen, his profession of the two greatest commandments reveals that he knows and affirms God's law, yet his heart was blind to the fact that he was grossly breaking both. But there's a second point in his confession that we've yet to address And that's that these two commandments are, as the scribe says, much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And this shows that the scribe is familiar with Israel's history. 
specifically their history of rebellion. And this knowledge of Israel's history testifies against the scribe. Because this statement that these commandments are greater than the whole system of burnt offerings and sacrifices, this was often a statement spoken by the prophets when they condemned Israel for their rebellion against the Lord. You see, Israel's history was one that was plagued by violations of the greatest commandment. Israel would rebel against God, they would chase the idols of the pagan nations, and ultimately they would devolve into violence against one another and immorality as a result. And God would bring judgment through the surrounding nations upon them. And in the midst of their suffering, they would seemingly turn from their wicked ways and offer sacrifices to the Lord for their sins. However, after sacrificing, Israel would just go right back to the same sins and the cycle would continue over and over and over again. And what this showed is that their sacrifices were merely meant to appease God and appease his anger, but they were offered from hearts that were far from him. The psalmist cries out regarding this situation in Psalm 46 through 8, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. Psalm 40, 6 through 8. This scribe's profession of Israel's rebellious history condemns him because he not only knew God's law, but he knew what God desired from him. God didn't desire sacrifice. God desired love and obedience. God desired his heart. Yet the mission that the heart of the scribe led him on was not one of love and obedience towards God and neighbor, but one that followed in the rebellion of his forefathers. One that sought to kill the greatest prophet, just as his forefathers had killed the prophets before him. One that thought it was offering a sacrifice and doing a service to Israel by killing Jesus. Yet in this external religious expression and zeal of the scribe, it flowed out of a heart of rebellion. And ultimately, all the religion that the scribe offered up to God was rendered utterly worthless because God does not want religious sacrifice. God wants the hearts of his people. And this still stands for us today as Christians. You see, all of our religious and external piety is absolutely worthless. All our service and tithing amounts to nothing. Every bit of our theology turns to cold, dead orthodoxy if our hearts are not grounded in love for the Lord our God and expressed in love for our neighbor, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But how easy it is for me to stand up here and to say these things to you. Your religious exercise is worthless if you don't have love. The reality is, let's call it what it is. We can't do this. You can't do this. I can't do this. And on our own, we're just as stuck in our spiritual apathy of heart as the scribe. And left to our own devices, we cannot love God. We will not love God. And ultimately, we're going to deceive ourselves into believing that our external religious practice is sufficient for us to enter into the kingdom of God. 
on our own, there is no hope for us to do this. So what do we need? Where do we turn? Let us not forget in this passage that the scribe is not the only person in this account, and praise the Lord that the scribe isn't. This is a conversation between the scribe and Jesus. And while we've spent the majority of the time considering the scribe's religious mission that was born out of a heart of disobedience, we have yet to consider Jesus' confession and the mission that he was on. Looking back at Psalm 40, 6 through 8, the Lord speaks through the psalmist and he proclaims that the Lord doesn't delight or require offerings, but for his people to listen to him, for his people to obey. Then he speaks of one who has come who delights in the will of God because the law of God is written on this one's heart. Who is this one that delights in the will of God and who has the law of God written on his heart? Hebrews chapter 10 verses 5 through 13 actually quotes this psalm and it reveals this one to be Jesus himself. Hebrews 10 5 through 13 states, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What we see in these verses is that Israel could never offer religious service or sacrifice to God because of their sin. And their hearts were far from God, and their heart is what the Lord desired. And in the same way, at one time, our hearts were far from God. At one time, our hearts were rebellious against God. They were hateful towards God. They were selfish and unloving towards God and our neighbor. However, when Christ came, he came in perfect love and obedience towards the Father, and he came to do the will of the Father by willingly going to the cross in perfect love and obedience of heart. And he would fulfill perfect love and obedience towards God by offering himself as the perfect sacrifice. Not only this, but out of his love for the Father, he came in perfect love for his neighbor. He came in perfect love for you and I. And he came in perfect love by speaking the truth to his enemies, though it would cost him his life. He came in perfect love by willingly taking the sins of his people upon himself and dying their death so that they might have a new heart that would follow his example. 
and that would love God and subsequently love others. And it is through his perfect love. And it's through his example. It's through his obedience towards God and love for us that we now are able to love God and love others. And when we find Jesus in this story, we see him on a mission of love and obedience that culminates in the cross. And in this mission, in this trajectory, in this focus, there is no fake external religion. In this mission, there is no selfishness. There is no pride. There's no self-righteousness. Jesus is not like the scribe. In Jesus' mission, there is only a sincere heart that loves God, that humbles itself before the Father's will, no matter what the cost, and loves the Father sacrificially. And in Jesus' mission, we see a heart that loves others to the point that he is willing to die on their behalf. As we conclude, let's examine our own hearts as Christians, and let's ask, whose example are we going to follow? Whose example? Are we going to follow the scribe's example? Or will we follow Christ's, and in him will we love God by not questioning his goodness, but trusting by faith that what he has for us in Christ is far greater than what we would have for ourselves. And we turn in faith to Christ, resting upon him and him alone. And in trusting in Christ alone, we then turn from our sins in wonderful and beautiful repentance of sins and in loving obedience towards God and out of turning to God in love through Christ, we then love our neighbors by picking up our crosses and we do this perhaps by placing the needs of our spouses, our children, and our families as higher than our own needs, desires, and wants. We do this by taking the time to meet the needs of those who are hurting and suffering. Right now, our church has this Facebook page for mercy, and every Single day, there is another need for somebody who's down on their luck and needs a ride somewhere. Somebody who's struggling to get by. Somebody who's hurting. And we as the church have the ability to love them as Christ has loved us by meeting these needs. We don't realize it, but something as simple as a car ride to and from work may establish a relationship of love and express Jesus' love towards them in such a way that it may open the door for us to share the gospel with them, and they may come to the knowledge of the glory of Christ, which has saved you and I. Isn't that worth the sacrifice of the little bit of time it takes to drive somebody to work, to stop with a homeless person, and sit down and just have a meal. To go to Cecil County Correctional Facility and meet with somebody who has nobody and is alone in a cell. We love our neighbors as Christ loved us by valuing others as greater than ourselves, picking up our crosses because he picked up his cross, and loving So as we close today, I leave you with this question to take with you this week. Whose example will you follow? Let's pray.
Lord God, I come to you today and I thank you uh, for this opportunity to preach your word. I pray that you would help us as a congregation to grow in our love towards you, that we might desire to obey you, to walk in your commandments, to grow in holiness and out of our love for you increasing, that you might give us a love and desire for those in our community, for those outside of the walls of the church and not only in the walls of the church. Help us to be a missional church. Help us to be a church of mercy that cares for those who are struggling and who are suffering. Allow us to glorify and honor you in our hearts through our external actions. Let us not be a people of religious show, but let us be a people of loving hearts. Help us this week to glorify you through love and to love our neighbors in glorifying you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.